You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. Hey, hey. Episode 91 with Hilmar Wagner. So Hilmar is a registered dietitian nutritionist. He's licensed both in Minnesota and Washington State and currently works with the EMILY program. He has extensive eating disorder experience, over 15 years in the field, clinical experience, managerial experience. I mean, regional, national, local, I mean, like really on any level, so much experience. Currently, he is the Dietetic Internship Coordinator and Clinical Outreach Specialist at the EMILY program and does a ton of presenting and education across the country. Today, we're talking a lot about intuitive eating almost versus what eating needs to look like in the beginning of eating disorder recovery. I don't want to say versus, but it's more so emphasizing the importance of regular eating as opposed to jumping straight into intuitive eating. So I know we've done a whole bunch of episodes of when intuitive eating isn't the right path necessarily for somebody. That one was with Laura Pamela a while ago, intuitive eating gone wrong. And the most recent one was intuitive eating, have we taken it too far? And I think what Helmar and I do is really break down what does eating need to look like, especially at the beginning of anyone's recovery. What happens when we jump straight into intuitive eating without really giving the context for this regular eating? And we also cover a lot of frequently asked questions that I get all the time. Like, why am I eating this food if it's not, quote, healthy? What do I do after a binge? What if I don't actually want the Oreos or Doritos? And even sprinkling in there some what to do if you have diabetes, because that one's a really tricky one, especially when most medical doctors are telling you one thing. So even if you're just looking for a trusted registered dietitian nutritionist to answer your questions, I mean, this is your episode, guys. So let's just (laughs) jump right in. I'm so excited to do this. Thank you so much for joining us, Hilmar. I am, you know, this is a topic that I'm very excited to cover. Well, so I think if the timeline matches up, this will come out a couple of weeks after an episode that we did on intuitive eating, taking intuitive eating too far. And there was a lot in that conversation. So you guys, you can go check that out. But I think what's really important about this particular conversation, especially after that, maybe (laughs) as a prequel almost, I don't know, I guess it's out of order. But talking about the importance of doing intuitive eating correctly so that we don't take a lot of this out of context. I think very often people think of intuitive eating as buying the book, which I absolutely love. I recommend for everybody to have it on their shelf, reading the book and then doing the 10 principles and that's intuitive eating. But what's lost is then when somebody has an eating disorder or someone suffers with any form of disordered eating, there's so much nuance and building a foundation of learning how to eat that's not part of intuitive eating. 
And I think that that is where people sort of lose that step. And then intuitive eating is taken out of context. So we either take it too far, or we don't do it properly, or we just you know end up continuing this disordered eating relationship. So maybe let's start with why is it important to regulate eating, especially in the beginning of someone's recovery, working toward intuitive eating? Of all the eating diagnoses, eating disorder diagnoses, one of the hallmarks, regardless of diagnosis, is dysregulation. And that would be true from disordered eating. I mean, it's just in the name, right? Sure. <laughs> and dysregulation occurs not both cognitively, emotionally. There's distortions about what we believe about food and the effects of food and the meaning of food. But it is also physiological. And if our meal pattern, our way of eating is dysregulated, then it has negative effects on our emotional and behavioral states as well. So early on, it's very important for a person to help bring back a regularly occurring eating pattern, regularly spaced meals, snacks, in order to help the body provide a steady state of nourishment that provides energy and nutrients to all of the organs in the body, including the brain. Mm-hmm. And it reduces the stress on the body to try and maintain that physiological balance, that homeostasis in between periods of eating or prolonged periods of not eating. And then lastly, from sort of a like a body memory standpoint or almost metaphysical standpoint, it lets the body know that nourishment will no longer be withheld or chaotic, but can settle into a reasonable expectation that the body will be fed and fed again. And this settles the autonomic nervous system, that fight, flight, freeze response that can come up if there is a period of prolonged withholding of food. So it sounds like, well, obviously multifaceted, but one really important reason to make sure to regulate one's eating, meaning at eating at regular frequency and all the food that a person needs, like a quantity, is that the body potentially is in this like hyper arousal state, almost, if you will. It's not the right word to use, but it's not in a calm, rested state. And when we continue to feed it regularly, so the body learns, okay, I'm going to get food. I don't need to divide my energy up into thinking about this and and worrying about it. And my brain can get some food and I trust that it'll get food. So I don't have to sort of do anything jumping through hoops to navigate all this. It's just sort of expected. So once that happens, I almost envision like, okay, everybody is going to just take a deep breath. Now we can start. Okay. Oh, I would love if that were to happen. But I know that there are people out there going like, yeah, but if I eat anything, if I eat that food, the last thing I'm going to do is settle and take a deep breath, like all the alarms are going off. And that is also true. There is this sort of dialectic, right? Both things can be true at the same time. Yeah. But we have to differentiate between the body and the mind. Not the body and the brain, but the body and the mind, right? Your statement just a minute ago, there is that state of high activation. 
you know, arouses you sometimes too, right? But of elevated activation, of sense of alarm or danger. And for the body, that is a evolutionary, inbred, one of our basic, basic core functions is to maintain life. And so when the body receives food or nourishment erratically or not for a long period of time, there is that autonomic response. It's not a brain cognitive response. The Mm -hmm. body just knows that it needs food to survive, right? So the body can start to settle. The autonomic nervous system could start to shift from that parasympathetic to the sympathetic state, but not if the introduction of food on a regular basis is causing anxiety for that person. Mm -hmm. So it can be very difficult for individuals with restrictive types of eating disorders to buy into that, to trust that. So early on in recovery, the person very well may feel more anxious. So it's really important to help understand and explain this is what actually is going to help this eventually resolve. And Mm -hmm. staying in this chaotic place only perpetuates the disordered eating. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens if someone doesn't do this or doesn't do this properly enough? So say, follow a meal plan with a dietitian, uh, regular eating, you know, what happens then? So if we are dysregulated physically, that physiological dysregulation, our body's attempts then to regulate our internal control, blood sugar control, glucagon control, nourishment of the body's energy systems, then that stress on the body translates into stress for us emotionally and cognitively. So if I am engaged in the work of my recovery, my ability to focus, to gain insight, to have clarity of thought, to have my prefrontal cortex online for rational thought is impaired if our body is struggling to keep its balance. An example would be that If we are in a situation where we aren't able to have something to eat or not enough to eat for three or four hours, we start to feel it. Mm -hmm. We aren't thinking as clearly. Our emotions are a little bit shorter. And so it is exactly that, except magnified many times over. Yeah. Well, does this still apply to somebody who doesn't necessarily get traditionally hungry after a long period of time? It does that the body is still sending out those signals. Those signals are either just intentionally blocked or ignored or just not being able to be received because of the danger that the person's mind has associated hunger with. Like hunger could be danger or hunger could actually be safety. As long as I feel that hunger, then I will be okay, right? So the internal systems are still moving along. It's our interpretation or lack thereof that is getting in the way. Yeah. Well, so for sure, for the person who 
pushes away their hunger cues and says, I know I feel hungry, but I'm just going to ignore them for whatever reason. But I guess I've heard this from people, I'm sure you have as well, where they say, I don't get hungry. Maybe it's the body's way of saying like, what's the point of getting hungry for this person? Because what, why torture them? But in that case, are you saying that this person still does get hungry, but in a different way? Or or how does hunger affect this person that isn't in touch with them, with that cue? Right. So there is still, you bring up a really good point that I was wishing I had made in my last statement, because there is that sort of survival response if Mm -hmm. a person hasn't eaten for a really protracted amount of time, that those hunger cues do subside. And there is that Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, if you're going to die anyways, there's less suffering involved Mm -hmm. in it. It's almost the freeze part of fight, flight, freeze. Mm -hmm. But if we step back a minute, it would make no sense. The body is really like, I'm fine now, right? It's still in this place of starvation and the activation around our evolutionary drive to survive is still hitting the alarm buttons. Now, if that's a dramatic example, let's just say that a person is really used to, their routine is to not eat until midday or even in the evening or something, and they just don't feel hungry. Mm -hmm. I absolutely buy that. Like, that is their experience. And it is a learned experience by environment, circumstance, safety, whatever the reasons are, right? But the part of the work of experimenting with regularly timed meals and snacks is to see if that current way of eating is actually most supportive of their body or it is actually resulting in a little bit more struggle, reduced energy, thinking emotionally, but they're just, that's the life they know, right? So Mm -hmm. the experiment of eating on a regular basis at first, they're like, why? Why the can I say hell on this podcast? Oh, sure. Okay, so why the hell should I eat if I'm not, if I'm not, not hungry, you right? You can say other things too. <laughs> <laughs> why should I eat if, if I'm not hungry? My body doesn't want food. And it's allowing those somatic sensations of hunger to just kind of get reawoken. Mm-hmm. Like We have just gotten used to ignoring or not sensing. So. It's for individuals with an eating disorder, it's important to help them aid their recovery. For a person that's engaged in intuitive eating or just going about living their lives, it can still be important because it helps us understand and look into what is the best way to nourish my body. And we just don't know until we try that. And so It doesn't have to be sitting down to bacon and eggs and hash browns or something, but it could just be putting in a small amount of food at, say, every two and a half, three hours, and just to expect, you had mentioned about intuitive eating, just to stay in tune with, how Mm -hmm. do I, how is my body responding? I would caution, not necessarily how do I feel, because if it is new or different, yeah. The the body doesn't think. Those cognitions are coming from upstairs. So that's intuitive eating by its very name is intuitive, not a thought process. Yeah, that's a that's a good distinction. 
People are very gung-ho about intuitive eating, rightfully so, I would say. But, you know, sort of people gotten on this train and they're like, oh, intuitive eating. I mean, so many people have actually turned it into a diet and it's just becoming a little bit more mainstream, which I'm glad that people are learning about the concept and people are getting behind the idea that restriction is a not the best thing for our bodies. But there are so many people, and again, I'm sure you come across this as well, that they jump straight into the three like most glamorous principles of intuitive eating, which is listening to your hunger, listening to your fullness, and honoring your cravings. I mean, they're, they're almost the hallmarks of intuitive eating, and that's just sort of people boil them down to just those three. So what would you say to somebody who says, I'm practicing intuitive eating, I'm like listening to my cravings, I'm only eating when I'm hungry, I'm stopping when I'm full. Like, what have they missed? I don't even know if I have a more specific question, but I guess like, well, what would you even say to them in terms of this context? Um, The first differentiation I would make is if the person has and is aware of any sort of disordered eating disorder, then intuitive eating is most likely not truly available to them mm-hmm. and will likely not serve them in the way that they hope. Because for the person that has distorted judgments and beliefs and ideas about food, as I had I mentioned just a little bit earlier, being aware of one's hunger or fullness can be misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. So that work needs to be preceded by the deep psychological, emotional work of what is it that has been overcoupled with that sensation of hunger or feeling. So they can return to a neutral response to those felt sensations. But let's say that is not the case. I have to start by admitting I'm a little bit of a stickler around intuitive eating and a little bit of a word nerd around it because I... Oh, I love that. Let's be accurate. (laughs) I hold this stance. For any of us, we have lost the ability to truly be intuitive eaters. Yes. So I don't think the name actually is fits. And I prefer a term called attuned eating that we can get to if we want to. But to truly be an intuitive eating in the way that I think about it, we have to be able to respond to the feeling of hunger and fullness and what is it that I enjoy and not enjoy in this sort of non-thinking, in touch somatically with our feelings. And after the age of, what, two, three, four, five, there's been way too much interference Our eating Mm -hmm. has likely been regulated. Mm -hmm. What foods that we have have been dictated for us. And Mm -hmm. from that very early age, that food is also usually presented with or connected with emotions or meaning. It would be very hard for me now to start eating crickets. Like there's just associations that exist for me. And I don't know if I really enjoy crickets or not. Uh, My apologies to any cricket eaters on the podcast. But um, (laughs) so the best we can do, I think, is to try and be as in touch with what our physiological somatic sensations are and put it in the context of what we know, believe, and is happening for us at that moment. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And also to go back to the original 
goal of regulating one's eating is that to relearn one's hungerfulness separate from a thought process is going to take the body trusting that it'll get the nourishment. And so part of like the, okay, yes, you honored your craving. You really wanted the, I don't know, the donut and you went and got the donut. That's great. But there's no foundation of building a sort of solid, not even relationship with food, but solid eating, regular intervals, et cetera, that we can then stick the hungerfulness and the satisfaction, the craving on top of that. And that to me feels like it would be a lot more long lasting as opposed to just sort of like sticking in, oh, here's like a little challenge. Here's a little challenge. It feels so, I don't know, haphazard or just sort of like disorganized and not really cohesive. Mm, I think about it uh, like training wheels. Like it's going to be very helpful for us to have a well-regulated basis from which to do our exploration. Yeah. As opposed to just jumping into the darkness and trying to figure it out from there. Because there's just too much variation and fluctuation. Nutrition is a science base, so I've got a little bit of that. Experiments need to be well controlled and have to understand what the other factors are. But I do think that that is true, that if we start from a place of balance, sort of relatively balanced and moderate intake, it is much easier for us to find the answer to those questions. And a couple of of examples, when we're working with people with eating disorders in a therapeutic supported meal, as Early on in their recovery efforts, there's very little choice because the eating disorder has hijacked those thoughts and meanings and understanding what and how much nourishment the body needs. But as they progress, it's very important to shift towards a more intuitive approach. And there may still be a moderately sized meal, but then we might support the person in intentionally having less, not finishing all of their food, to see what that brings up for them, mm-hmm. physiologically, as well as psychologically and emotionally, or to take more food than they think they're hungry for, to really get a sense of what objective fullness is. Because people with an eating disorder, their impression about what full is, what satiation is, is sometimes either exaggerated much further than that or not close to that. So Mm -hmm. there needs to be this series of well-designed, well-controlled experiments in which the person can feel a sense of safety to look at what is it that my body is really wanting or needing. And that can include experiments like not having the donut, even if I really want the donut. Mm-hmm. to just refer to it as flexing the choice muscle. Yeah. If I always have it when I want it, how do I know that I really can choose to to not if I don't want to? Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting point you bring up because choice is so ambiguous when it comes to relearning food. Because if you think about it, most people come in and for the reason that they no longer feel like they have, quote, control over their eating, 
And usually it started out as they feel like they were really good at this. So they were really in control, meaning they really were able to make what they called, quote, good choices. And now they can't make good choices. And that we're saying, let's regulate your eating and let's incorporate all these different types of foods. And then you can decide. But this idea of choice is so, so vague and fuzzy because I have so many people telling me, I actually didn't want the donut. I truly, truly checked in with like every single part of my cravings and like in the back of my ear, nothing wanted the donut. But did you actually not want the donut? It's so hard to, I, you know, what's the answer? How do you know? <laughs> Well, it is. It is so ambiguous. And until we do have the app, the gauge on our chest that registers donut desirability, like it's going to be subjective, right? Oh, please no one make that. That's going to be terrible. (laughs) (laughs) App designers out there, go do something else. Yeah. (laughs) But it is still important to do the work to understand to our best ability, what is it or how is it we want to nourish our bodies? Not what the FDA tells us, not what our course in high school, our parents, the latest fad diet book. Like You could take into consideration all of those things, but I think the work is really coming to a much more personal decision about how is it I want to nourish my body. Mm-hmm. One of the things that gets in the way of that is that food is often moralized. Like there are good foods. Yeah. And if I eat good foods, then I'm doing good or I am good or I will be good. If I eat bad food or I eat junk or I eat crap, like there's all of these associated implications and meanings that we tend to internalize Mm -hmm. as well. So if air quotes, don't want the donut, it's worth at least exploring why I might not, or do I really not want that? Or am I just telling myself Yeah, I don't because it's bad for my cholesterol or only lazy people eat don't, like whatever, whatever that might be. Yeah. Which is so interesting because, and again, you probably have the same amount of people telling you this. They tell you one thing, But I think that the only person that has the real answer is this person in their mind and heart. And no matter what they tell other people or even tell their providers, it's not the kind of thing that I can ever know as somebody's therapist, you know, if I'm not inside their mind. So the idea of, no, 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 I really didn't want it. Well, that could be true, but it also could be that you're trying to convince me. Maybe you're trying to convince yourself. I don't know. I think to the people who are listening to this right now, this is not about, you know, how honest you are with other people. I think this is how honest you are with yourself and really differentiating what do I want and maybe asking questions like, why do I want this? Why do I not want this? And if I don't want it, like maybe what am I afraid would happen if I did have it? Because this is always going to be the thing, the kind of question that I'm wondering What's the real answer? Like, are we really, really talking truth here or are we not? And I believe that one of the ways to help really find that out is to 
sometimes make the other choice. Yeah. I'm a dietitian, you're a therapist, so you'll know you'll have a better anchor on this. But like I believe in dialectical behavioral therapy, one of the strategies is opposite action. Uh-huh. Right. So this can drive people crazy, but I'm like, all right, I absolutely don't want the donut. Well, it might be good for you to have the donut. And they're like, I thought listening was a skill you were supposed to have. I yeah. just said, I do not want the donut, right? But the purpose of having a bite of the donut is to check in. Is there a fear? Is there anything? And if you have the bite of the donut and you're like, yeah, it didn't really do anything for me, fine. Don't eat the rest of the donut. But if you're like, hang, and like that was kind of good. Maybe I want more of it. Is there anything that comes up? Right, that thought is that yeah. little hair on the back of your neck, like anything, or is it neutral? Right, what else might or might not be associated with it? And it doesn't have to be formal. I think when people are struggling with food, having that be a well designed experiment with a provider present for sport is really helpful. But I think going through your day to day life, it's just a good practice to make sure that your intuitive eating is intuitive eating. Yeah. And that we haven't slipped back into our thoughts, judgments, preferences, afraid if I have the donut and there are other people there, what are they going to think about me? Right? Uh, oh, that's re- it's really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. The peanut gallery gets kicked in. Or even I'm thinking about the experiment. So I don't want the donut, the ice cream, insert whatever it is. I'm going to have it anyways for the sake of this experiment. Now I have it and now I feel really guilty. And the physical sensations in my body, are really heightened and I can't distract myself from it. That I'm thinking what you're saying is so much information for us that without the experiment, we would lose all of that. You would never understand. Yes. Like the good news is what you think the bad news is, right? Because we at least have information we can work with, understand, make decisions about that we wouldn't have had before. So sometimes the sense of feeling in control is a way to stay safe or not feel bothered with or burdened with, oh my God, now I gotta think about what I'm gonna do with the stupid donut, right? (laughs) Yeah. But if our goal is to try and be as in tune with what it is we decide we want to do to nourish our bodies, it's important yeah. to continue to check in on that. So maybe in the same vein, is that the phrase? I don't know. On this topic, let's say that there's so many questions that I get around. I don't know what we can call them for, I guess for the sake of this topic is maybe fun foods or fear foods that people are like, why do I have to eat that? If I thought this was about getting healthy and like, donuts aren't healthy. And of course, like my favorite word is healthy because everyone understands it differently and nobody like is on the same page with that. So we can't even use it before we define it. But the idea is that, you know, as therapists, dietitian, we try to encourage people to neutralize food and incorporate fear foods to challenge themselves, even in the times where they're not interested in challenging themselves to challenge themselves to eat it anyways. And what would you say to the question of like, why would I put this into my diet if it's like not good for me? To assure the listeners, like I am a 
card-carrying registered dietitian. I am not here to say that different foods don't have different long-term effects on the bodies and all foods are exactly the same. That is, of course, not true. All foods have different nutritional characteristics and energy levels and all of that. But I steadfastly maintain that doesn't make that food good and it doesn't make that food bad, right? Mm -hmm. Like there isn't, carrots aren't good and carrot cake isn't bad. There's a place mm -hmm. and a time where carrots feels like that's the best choice and carrot cake feels like it's the best choice. If I only eat carrots and I only eat carrot cake, then I'm not going to do so well, right? Probably um, not, yeah. <laughs> right? So it is a legitimate question, especially for those individuals that have uh, medical conditions or know that their body responds poorly to certain foods. So if the person that I'm working with is it lives with diabetes, then they may push back on having foods that would have adverse effects on their blood sugar, mm -hmm. either actual effects or there is a fear or danger that they would. And the reason why I think that it is still important is um, it's a few a few reasons. One is that for many individuals that absolutely do not then take in any of those, those end up being the foods that they might binge on. Because there's that forbidden fruit, I can never, ever have them. But it doesn't mean that they don't want them. And it doesn't even mean that there isn't some physiological response in their body that the body is looking for. So if I eat, say, a food that has a higher percent of simple carbohydrates, that's going to get ingested more rapidly into my body. It's going to rise my blood sugar. And maybe that is exactly what I need in that moment. And to say, nope, I'm never going to eat those foods, maybe going against what your body is actually trying to tell you. And the other is that it puts that singular food or that category of food into this catastrophic, horrible things are going to happen if I eat that food. Mm -hmm. And that activation we were talking about earlier, the alarm, the alert, continues to feel like I am surrounded by danger or I'm always in danger if that food is there because part of me wants it, but I know I shouldn't or can't have it. And that is going to result in a more constant production of stress hormones. That has a negative effect on the body. And let's, if we stay with the diabetes example, modern diabetes management care allows for people to eat a wide, wide variety of foods. You just take the appropriate steps to manage that. And coming to a place of true choice of whether I will decide to eat that food or not will actually, in the long run, allow them the best possible management of that, as opposed to the I can never eat it. I won't, I won't, I won't. Oh, but this one time and then overeat. And then you get these wide variations and swings that are much more damaging and difficult to control. Yeah, that's a good point. I also think that we have to highlight this is a period of time where people are working to heal their relationship with food. And hopefully they're working with a dietitian. And hopefully that period of time is not too significantly long without putting you know time markers on this. I guess what I'm saying is that this is not the way that the person is going to eat forever. It's almost a curated way to eat so that they can learn what's true choice 
and how they want to eat and then have it become back of mind, like not even something that they're thinking about. So to some of those people who are like, oh my God, are you saying that I'm going to do this forever, especially if I have diabetes? Well, I don't know, but maybe not. Maybe yes. This is for right now. That's all we're talking about. It is the point. It's such an intentional point is that structure, those experiments are in service of helping to bring the person to a place where they absolutely can decide what they want to eat, when they want to eat, how much of any kind of food they choose to eat, or to the point we brought up earlier, they may choose to eat more than they're hungry for because they're going to be engaged in something for a period of time that they won't have the opportunity to eat. Or they may be invited to speak on a podcast and feel a little fluttery about eating beforehand. So put off eating until after the podcast. What are you talking about? That's <laughs> <laughs> just a hypothetical example. So that is the attuned eating part as opposed to intuitive. Like I'm in touch as I can be about what my body feels like having what works best for my body, and then what are the circumstances surrounding that. And it could be that I go against or different from a, a urge or a craving for reasons that I am aware of that will help the greater good. It's like, as we are the only animals that have that reasoning, so mm -hmm. we can choose to follow or not follow, right? But first, we have to get as clear about what it is as possible. And especially people with, in recovery from eating disorders, our goal is to remove all of that scaffolding and all of that supports over time so that they can get back to living their lives and eating in a way that optimizes their health and well-being. Yeah, yeah. I just have my eye on the time, so I'm going to let you go. But before I do so, I have one last question. We don't have to go expand too much on it. This is also something that I get a ton. Again, I'm sure you get it just as much. The idea that we're talking about incorporating regular eating and challenging yourself to eat different fair foods. But this quote, regular, which is sort of like depending on the frequency and time in between intervals. So what if somebody binges and that's wherever it is, insert binge, like, we always say the first thing to do is just continue with your regular schedule. And obviously that's the last thing that anybody wants to do after a binge. Like the last thing in the world I would want to do is eat. So maybe can you talk to you for a second why, why that's important, the regular, even after the binge? You're absolutely right. It can be one of the most challenging things that a person is trying to confront because there is a very logical argument. I have in the past 12 hours consumed, you know, whatever this amount of food is, my body can't possibly need or want anything more again this soon. So here are the few parts of it that I think are helpful for folks is, let's say the binges are often, certainly not exclusively in the evening, but let's just say, for example, right, the individual had binged in the evening, now it comes to be the morning, and the encouragement is to get up, have the, their regular breakfast. The reasons why it's important to do that is that it helps to promote and sustain that homeostatic state of the body, still receiving food on a regular basis. 
and there isn't, as there typically is, a binge-restrict cycle. And now there is this larger intake of food followed by a prolonged absence of food or under-eating of food. This regulates the body's system again. And like a spinning top, once that dysregulation happens, it is very often that gets more and more dysregulated mm-hmm. because then the body's hunger cues are getting louder and louder and the stress around not eating is getting higher and higher. And it promotes further binge behaviors, which as you work with all the time, then results in greater feelings of lack of control and I can never get rid of this. So that's one reason. Another is that it helps to establish, not only physiologically, but emotionally and cognitively, that binge was a temporary deviation. And what I'm doing the next morning is returning to this way of eating that I am adopting in order to recover from my eating disorder or to return to the way of eating that helps support my body. So it is like that happened and it happened and it is a unique event that is not linked to the next eating event. And establishing that next regularly occurring eating event helps to differentiate, note that that had happened, but I'm back on the course that I have chosen. I liken it to mindfulness. I do a mindfulness meditation practice. And one of the sayings is the goal is to never not have your mind wander. uh, Mm -hmm. But it's the goal is every time it does is to come back. And I think the same is true for eating. It's not that it's never, there won't ever be any deviations. The goal is just to return to in a loving, Mm -hmm. self-compassionate way to go come back to the path that you're choosing for yourself. Yeah, so well put. (laughs) All right, so now I'm really going to let you go, but maybe before I do let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you? Absolutely. So I work with an organization called the Emily Program that exclusively works with people with eating disorders, all eating disorders, all genders, all ages. And on their website, the emilyprogram.com, not the, just emilyprogram.com. There are a number of resources there for people to access. There's a self-screener, if you have questions about eating disorders or think you might have an eating disorder, recorded educational workshops, blog, a podcast called Piecemeal, like peace, P-E-A-C-E. I could see you couldn't tell that I was holding up my fingers in a V. Uh, Is that you on there or is that your colleagues? So there's a list of upcoming talks that are given all free, all online, that are open to anyone that I have a few coming up as well as a number of other excellent speakers, which made me just sound like I was an excellent speaker myself and other speakers as well. (laughs) Maybe I am. (laughs) And if folks would like to reach out, they can certainly find me at hilmar.wagner, H-I-L-M-A-R-W-A-G-N-E-R, at acanto, A-C-C-A-N-T-O dot com. Great. Well, one second. For people who aren't familiar with the EMILY program, what do they do? Yes. So the EMILY program is a organization that deals with people with eating disorders. We have offices, locations across seven states. And 
are part of a larger organization, Akanto Health, that incorporates both the EMILY program and Veritas Collective, another organization that works with people with eating disorders. Cool. All right. Now I'll really let you go. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.